Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, I welcome you to uh, the Middle East Center uh, uh, lecture series on the Arab Spring. I think it's still going on. I'm an outsider uh, to LSC and the Middle East Center, but obviously there are some affinities here. Um, I'm, my name is Madawi Al-Rashid. I'm a, a social anthropologist, professor of social anthropology at King's College just next door. Um, I'm very honored to chair this session, um, and uh, uh, we've got a... Um, 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 an important lecture today by Professor Charles uh, Tripp. Uh, let me introduce Professor Charles Tripp. Uh, he's Professor of Politics with reference to the Middle East at the School of Oriental and African Studies, the University of London. His research interests include the nature of autocracy, state, and resistance in the Middle East, and Islamic political thought. He's the author of several books. I think his uh, forthcoming book, um, the title is The Power and the People, Paths of Resistance in the Middle East, published by Cambridge University Press in 2012. I've just checked uh, next door at the bookshop. It's still uh, not out. I think October, it, is, I think. it <laughs> is coming in October. So we all look forward to this, and it, uh, this uh, new volume that is going to be very timely, and I'm sure as previous work of uh, Professor Tripp, uh, very interesting and illuminating. Also, he's the author of Islam and the Moral Economy, The Challenge of Capitalism, published also by Cambridge University Press in 2006. Uh, we probably know him uh, for his seminal work on Iraq, his book, A History of Iraq, published in 2007 and ran into several editions, um, is uh, one of the most comprehensive, uh, simple to read with clarity. Uh, this doesn't undermine the complex thought that went into that book and the complex situation in Iraq itself. But Charles, I think, one of those academics uh, who writes in a very unusually clear um, style. Uh, also, he's the joint author of Iran and Iraq at War, uh, published in 1988. Um, just before um, I finish this brief introduction, I'd like to uh, um, ask you please to um, switch off your mobile phones. Um, and also, I would like to draw your attention to the fact that the lecture is tweeted by the LSC uh, staff. Um, and also, uh, feel free to do the same if you find interesting um, uh, arg uh, arguments, ideas, um, I think you are encouraged to tweet them as long as you uh, uh, are faithful to the uh, uh, citations. So no additions or subtractions there if you're going to tweet. So please uh, uh, join me in welcoming Professor uh, Charles Tripp um, and we look forward to uh, your talk. You've got uh, between 30 and 45 minutes, if, if one hour, if you want to stretch it, and then uh, we should have a session of question and answer. Please welcome Professor Charles Tripp. Madawi, thank you uh, very much indeed. Um, a bit overwhelming. I'm not sure people will rush out and buy the book after listening to me for an hour, so I'll try and make it slightly shorter than an hour. Uh, in the hope of, of course, increasing sales, uh, which, of course, is another question of why I've decided to call this talk uh, The Politics of Resistance and the Arab Uprisings. Obviously, it's because I'm working on notions and uh, formations of resistance uh, in the Middle East, and uh, I had been working on that, and therefore, in a sense, looking at the 
uh, uprisings of 2011 uh, was an interesting way of fitting it in. It also meant I had to revise several uh, examples in the chapters I used. But again, uh, there is uh, a stronger um, analytical reason for doing so. What I'm trying to get at, in other words, by looking at uh, a politics of resistance is to emphasize the notion that what I'm looking at is a framework of resistance, not simply of dissent, not simply of opposition, uh, but of resistance. It's worth justifying myself and saying, what exactly do I mean by that? And I think a number of senses in which I think the, the notion of resistance as a form of politics becomes uh, a way of thinking about some of the implications of the uprisings of 2011. First of all, the notion that resistance is resistance to the systematic appropriation of public resources and the instruments of power. It's not simply about uh, an individual. It's about a whole system that has emerged to appropriate resources that had hitherto been public, that by rights many people regard as public, and it is in a sense organizing around uh, and against that. It's also, of course, resistance against the systematic brutalities and indeed the contempt of the security authorities that have been displayed uh, in uh, many countries, uh, of course in, in many Middle Eastern countries too. So in a sense, it's also about a systematic use of coercive power and the opposition uh, that it evokes. It's also, of course, resistance to the whole thicket of petty rules and regulations that entrap people in certain forms of power. Uh, and, of course, and this, of course, is very uh, important for understanding some of the dynamics of uh, many of the uprisings in uh, the states of the Middle East, not simply uh, the many, the proliferation of petty rules and regulations, but the deliberate arbitrariness of their enforcement. In other words, you use the arbitrary as a systematic way of enforcing power. It isn't careless, it is actually planned, and therefore, in a sense, resistance is resistance uh, to that as well. And finally, as you'll see from some of the uh, slides I use, it is also resistance to the widespread myth of the father of the nation uh, or the monarchical president, the perverted republicanism that turns presidents into kings uh, and uh, creates around them uh, the myth of obedience that they are so keen on enforcing. So I think those are the reasons why I'm trying to think about uh, the uprisings of 2011 within this framework of a politics of resistance, not simply, as I said, uh, within uh, the uh, notion of, uh, of politics of opposition. And the reason I'm saying that also is because I think one of the dangers, as many of you obviously who follow the Middle East uh, in one form or another are aware of, is that... Uh, 2011 came as a great surprise to many people uh, who shouldn't have been surprised at all. Uh, and what I'm trying to get at here, therefore, is that it's not just about 2011, it's what went before. And so in a sense, if one looks about the, at the uprising of 2011, you're not just looking at the events that start in December 2010, January 2011, you're looking at uh, the systematic resistance that had been so much a characteristic of many parts uh, of the Middle East, uh, uh, Middle Eastern politics before as well. So resistance, in a sense, had been very much part of Middle Eastern politics, at the heart of Middle Eastern politics for a long time. Uh, this, uh, as you'll see, is 2004 in the Kurdish regions of Syria. Somebody's well-known face is being erased uh, in 2004, as, of course, it's going to be erased in 2011. So in a sense, this was something that had been happening long before. It's something that, in a sense, is against the systems of power that are opposed. These are, again, 
uh, the ways in which people have acted and organized to resist forms of power imposed upon them, whether by foreigners, uh, whether by uh, local uh, elites of one form or another. Uh, it's trying to get a grip of the notion that long before 2011, people have been standing up to various forms of oppression, repression, uh, and uh, encroachment. And in many senses, therefore, what one's also looking at is the ways in which uh, power has tried to reassert itself in one form or another. It's just, I'm showing these because, in a sense, it's a reminder that everything didn't begin in 2011. Things have been going on for a long time before, and in a sense, that's something I'll come back to uh, uh, thereafter as well. And in many senses, therefore, it strikes a powerful chord in the popular imagination. Uh, when you see uh, pictures like that, or pictures like this from Bahrain uh, in 2007 and 8, you realize that in fact something has snapped long before. The notion that somehow the myth of the uh, monarchical president or the myth of the monarch uh, in this case uh, has already been effectively shredded in the imagination of, of most of the people. That in many ways the tyrant has been overthrown long before the physical overthrowing of uh, the head of the regime. It readies people, in other words, in this sense, uh, for uh, a more active politics of resistance. This, in many ways, uh, epitomizes what was happening. Mahal al-Kubra uh, in, in Egypt, 2008, actually the chap who, who photographed the top picture uh, and the person who dared publish it was immediately arrested uh, by the regime that could still manage to do that. But of course, it's very difficult to tell the difference between that and that, really, because in a sense, it's the same symbolic expression. And what it's giving expression to is, in a sense, a politics of resistance that attacks the forms, the symbolic forms of power uh, in many ways. Uh, and uh, in, in that sense, therefore, becomes part of the uh, gradual uh, power of resistance itself. And some people have described this as the move that had long been taking place uh, in the Middle East from Haybet uh, al the awe of the state, uh, to Khawf al-Nizam, that is, fear of the regime. As soon as the Haybet, as soon as the awe has disappeared, so has the hegemonic power. And so all you're left with is fear. You fear for your life, you run away quite understandably, but for these people running in fear of the arm of the regime, the awe, the, the authority of the state, the hegemonic power of the state has long gone. So in a sense, Hebet al-Dawla has long uh, disintegrated or e evaporated uh, in one form or another. So the significance, therefore, of thinking about a politics of resistance in this sense is to think about it uh, in terms of resisting what the state has become uh, in many parts of the Middle East, in terms of its physical and coercive power, uh, resisting its appropriation for the personal interests of the few, uh, and also resisting the outrageous lie of the projection that this is a popular state, a people's state. Uh, it's, in effect, turning those images on its head. But in the argument I'm making, this isn't something that just happened in 2011. This is something that's been happening uh, for a very long time before. Of course, what we're dominated by in many of the images uh, of 2011 are, of course, these uh, vivid images of the uprising. Mohamed Bouazizi in, uh, in Tunisia, Tahrir Square in Cairo, uh, demonstrations in front of the courthouses in Benghazi, uh, the uh, Tahrir uh, Change Square in Sana'a, uh, the occupation of the Pearl Roundabout uh, in Manama, and of course the, from, 19, uh, from uh, March onwards, uh, beginning in Dera'a in Syria, 
the ways in which uh, brave Syrians occupied public space in uh, a sense, demonstrating how the awe of the state had long uh, evaporated in from some form or another. So thinking about uh, the Arab uprisings, therefore, in the, uh, in the politics of resistance, there are three aspects of this that I want to try and think about before we start talking about one particular aspect uh, in particular. One is uh, the centrality of space uh, to the organization and the thought of resistance itself. The second is the centrality of order and its apparent negation through disorder. And the third is the importance of the emergence of the public as an actor in politics, emerging, if you like, from what had been hitherto a rather deliberately fragmented uh, subject population into something that becomes much more substantial imaginatively and uh, actively in the sense of the public. So it's worth saying a bit about what I, I mean by those aspects of it, which I think, again, are all three fundamental to thinking about why one, it's helpful to think about the uh, uh, uprisings of 2011 within this notion of the politics of resistance itself. So the centrality of space. What I'm trying to get across here, and I'll, I'll go into that in more detail later, is that space in this sense isn't simply an arena uh, where power plays itself out. It's actually a key component in the exercise of power itself. It is actually a component of power. Space is often regarded as a kind of neutral area where uh, power plays around with people in one form or another. But what I'm trying to argue is that space is a place not only for the exercise of power, but it constitutes power itself, both imaginatively, uh, coercively, and in terms of the disciplining of the population. And by the same token, it becomes an extraordinarily powerful instrument in the hands of resistance, as I shall be talking about. So centrality of space, I think, is one of the interesting aspects, both physically and symbolically, for uh, the uh, politics of resistance and the uprisings. Secondly, the whole question of the centrality of order and its negation. In other words, if one thinks about the way in which power is exercised, and power is exercised over people, not just in the Middle East either, the notion of an orderly population uh, a disciplined subject is, if you like, at the heart of all forms of hegemonic power, not just uh, in the Middle East. But its transformation into disorder, of course, uh, is also part of the resistance. So the disordering of power and power's notion of order and the disciplined subject becomes a key instrument in the unraveling of uh, the constellation of power itself. Both of these aspects, both that is power and disorder, uh, space and disorder, rather, uh, emphasize the aspect of resistance that I think is the third one that I want to talk about, which is the importance of the public. The public not simply as an idea, uh, but as a mobilized political force, a mobilized political force that's visible in the interaction between the public and the so-called public authorities, the ways in which people constitute themselves as a counter-public to the claim by the public authorities that they are public authorities. In many senses, the mobilization of the public is to give the lie to exactly such uh, a form of mobilization. Uh, the ways in which uh, the mobilized public force of the public becomes the uh, counterpart to uh, the what are called the Habaib Ra'is, the, the sweethearts or the darlings of uh, the president uh, or the darlings of the regime in this sense. Uh, this is, as you can see, Mubarak and various cronies uh, around from one of the wonderful uh, street uh, uh, paintings by Ganzia in Cairo. 
their claim to be able to monopolize public space on behalf of the public, but actually in the hands of a very few numbers of, as it were, the sweethearts or the cronies uh, of uh, the president himself. And I think that what one's looking for, therefore, is the way in which the uprisings in 2011 have become a way in which an activist public has been constituted. Uh, an activist public, not simply uh, in terms of, as I said, different oppositional groups, but constituting a new actor, a different kind of actor uh, in politics itself. It acts against the dominant regime, clearly, uh, if one can see from uh, graffiti like this, trying to dislodge uh, a whole apparatus and its rationale, not just the autocrat uh, at the head of it. Uh, in some cases, clearly, in some countries, the overthrow of the autocrat allows to, uh, a chance to rethink political authority itself, and in others, the fragmentary and uncertain outcomes uh, have been not only because of the use of violence, uh, but also because of the fear that much of the system has weathered the storm and is trying to entrench itself before the next round. One could argue Egypt and Yemen uh, are in many ways uh, part of that concern. So in doing so, in thinking about these factors and these aspects, I want to just, uh, before I turn to look at the particular uses of uh, public space in the uprisings themselves, to think of a couple of features that, in a sense, become very evident in uh, the uprisings in the Arab world, but also uh, are constitutive of resistance politics anywhere. The first is the way in which the performative becomes a key part of the uh, events that we've seen. Uh, and the second is the way in which systematic resistance follows the capillary forms of power to disentangle power itself. And the first one, uh, performative politics, I see as sometimes as a key uh, to these events. In other words, a battle for space and its visible denial uh, of an, to an imposed order were performances that people created with their bodies uh, in the sense for multiple audiences but not just a performance as a theatrical performance, although there was an element of that there, but I'm talking about performative politics as a process of self-constitution, that in many senses what you begin to see is the novelty of acting as a public, acting in a public domain, becoming a public actor, uh, paying attention to the way in very different individuals with different ideological agendas make themselves into a collective body, a counterforce uh, that has rights, and that reapproaches the authority long seized by people uh, such as those portrayed there. But also, of course, by performing the public, uh, people were establishing a counter system of order. And in that sense, therefore, uh, was an answer to the claim made by uh, those in power uh, that without them, the whole thing would splinter into uh, various uh, disorderly and fragmentary parts. So, not always sustained, but in a sense a very powerful message of the performance of a unified public, a performance of a determined public, creates a, 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 an incredibly powerful answer uh, to those who would argue for the indispensability of the single powerful leader. So performative politics and how people, in a sense, used it to counter uh, the forms of power has been a key part of the uh, Arab uprisings of 2011. But equally, as I said, the systematic resistance uh, that has sought to uh, fight against imposed order has followed the capillary forms of power. And by that I mean that in a sense, if one thinks of power 
as is often said, having uh, tentacles of a capillary nature that discipline uh, the subject population. You have to also give the subject population the credit for using them against the regime itself, following them back to the source and, in a sense, uh, using disorder uh, to engage with and disorient the very nerves of the political system itself. And one could argue that this was a key feature of many of the so-called leaderless uprisings of 2000. And 11. The flash mobs, uh, the football supporters, the other forms of organization and direction that were always clearly, uh, uh, or not at all, clearly identifiable. And therefore, in a sense, puzzled, uh, frustrated, and enraged uh, those in power because they were effectively using forms of association and organization that they could not deal with precisely because they had jammed effectively the nerves of power itself. As a result, of course, uh, the ubiquity of it, the effectiveness of it, led to the claim that some have read into the disorder that is all the hand of dark forces, external forces. This, of course, has been a common uh, claim by those in power, and it's often been echoed by all sorts of people outside the sphere of power itself. So again, a notion that how do you explain the power of resistance to emerge, to use the capillary power of the state against the state and uh, you explain it by agency, by conspiracy, uh, and by the uh, forms that uh, they will take in one form or another. So what I'm going to explore for the, for the second part of the talk is really having given you some sense of how I'm approaching the notion of a politics of resistance, which applies to the Middle East, but not just to the Middle East either, uh, and certainly applies to the Middle East, but not just in 2011 either. Uh, is to get a sense of uh, this particular aspect that interests me particularly uh, of uh, public space uh, and its significance in uh, the uh, uprisings of 2011, having, I hope, said something about the way in which uh, the um, public space enters into and the competition for public space enters into the, uh, the, uh, fragment of the, the, the fight for power itself. And, I suppose the significance at one point about thinking about public space is that one thinks about uh, the Middle East as in many other places, uh, that there is a gap always between power's representation of itself and its location. And this, in a sense, is power's representation of itself. Um, tragically, he probably believed it as well. But there's a sense in which this notion of the projection of power is this is the way it should be and you will use violence to ensure that people do not gainsay that. So in a sense, the power of the projection of the myth becomes part of it. A public state, in other words, uh, visible institutions and agencies, but behind it, a shadow state, a state of the associations between those represented in the public uh, domain. And violence used by governments to maintain the gap between them, between the maintain the gap between uh, the pretensions of the public state and the reality of the shadow state, to crush anyone who dares strip away the myth uh, of the uh, uh, public state, and to ensure that what people see is what the government wants them to see. So what I'm trying to get at, therefore, is how this began to unravel in 2011, how this becomes a key part of the way in which resistance organizes itself. Uh, in the competition for public space. In competing with, for public space, you not only deflate the myth, you not only physically displace power, but you constitute yourself as an active public 
that owes nothing to those in power at all. So I'll be in talking about this in, I suppose, four senses that I shall be, or four aspects of this to think about. One is the aspects of public space itself, the, the question of competition for streets, for squares uh, across uh, cities uh, in the Middle East in 2011. The second is the huge symbolic power of uh, the, uh, on, and the effects of that on the nature of, of uh, power itself, the ways in which, for once, you could argue symbolic power is demonstrated to have a real effect instead of simply being dis dismissed uh, in some form or another. Uh, Thirdly, to say something about the way in which regimes have tried to disrupt this, to try and reoccupy public space, to try and deny the notion of uh, a resistant public. And lastly, to say something about what happens when violence enters into this equation uh, of resistance and uh, some of the problems uh, that may come from that. We take the first question first, that is the first aspect of it. Public space is the streets, the, the, the squares, the streets, uh, the cities of uh, the Middle East itself. There are a number of aspects worth thinking about. The first is a very obvious one, which is, of course, they become the site for the exercise of uh, and display of regime power for surveillance, uh, for ritual humiliations. They've been called, quite accurately, the parade grounds of the powerful. Uh, you parade, you are disciplined, you are militated within that to produce the disciplined subject that is the uh, image of uh, the powerful itself. So, of course, the huge portraits, uh, the statues of the leader, uh, the person who, uh, to paraphrase the, his guy's dad, where the beating heart of the shadow state lies, are grotesquely portrayed as somehow public heroes uh, across uh, the public squares of the cities uh, themselves. But, of course, one could argue that this can also be interestingly uh, subverted. Uh, wonderfully so, there was a, a case of uh, the reappearance of uh, Ben Ali uh, in Tunis in uh, September 2011. And what happened was that the um, uh, initial enthusiasm of January 2011 had led exactly to this, the occupation of public space, the destruction of the face of the tyrant, and so on. Uh, but, of course, inevitably, as is the case with all human uh, conduct, people's enthusiasm began to flag. The tyrant fled. He went with his millions. Uh, uh, new institutions came about. And, of course, elections were called. And those who were concerned that the elections should have real meaning for once in Tunisian history um, were concerned that people were simply not registering, not getting out to vote. And uh, so had this ingenious idea in September 2011 to hang this massive portrait of Ben Ali on the walls of Tunis. And there's, actually, it's caught on YouTube as well, but there's a wonderful bit where Tunisians are sort of driving along, and they suddenly look at this huge face, and they're like, God, he's back, what's happened? And they start to gather in a crowd, which is a crowd that gets more and more angry, recreating exactly the spirit of January 2011, so much so that they rip it down uh, in a later scene, only to reveal behind it an equally vast... Uh, a public service sign which says effectively dictatorship never sleeps get out and vote so in a sense it was precisely the effort to try and recapture that moment of the recreation of the public the rage against the privatization of power in the hands of Ben Ali uh, that those who were concerned to uh, hang him up again on the on the walls of Tunis uh, managed to do quite effectively so 
The point is that once you do that, as these people in Tunis showed in 2011 had showed long before, uh, you of course put the public face on display, but you also of course make it a wonderful uh, place for the exercise of uh, power of the power of resistance itself. You demonstrate in many ways, therefore, the ways in which power can be denied simply by the, and there is a kind of common idiom to this, the red cross across faces of various dictators becomes a common idiom for denying the authority. So in a sense, just as power tried to project itself, it gets uh, turned on its head. So this question of re transforming public space from a site uh, for the exercise and display of regime power into something else becomes uh, clearly part of the, uh, of the game itself. And one could see that in the ways in which public spaces, these are largely in Benghazi, uh, are uh, redrawn to project a very different image of power itself. So mass occupation, in other words, is not simply about the physical occupation, that's a key part of it, but it's also about the destruction of a whole symbolic order of power as well. But mass occupation is extraordinarily important in terms of the uh, mobilizing of a protesting public, but also, of course, uh, for the impression, for the, the image it gives of uh, a public that is taking over uh, the cities of the, the squares of the cities themselves. Physically, of course, as all one knows from all these pictures of uh, uh, the cities of much of the Arab world over the last year, hundreds of thousands of people assembling in public spaces effectively physically exclude the agents of the regime. So what was the parade ground for the exercise of humiliation becomes something very different. You exclude uh, the agents of the regime. You defeat them when they try to attempt to seize back public space. You use your body as a weapon a weapon against the reoccupation of public space by the privatized power uh, of the dictators. And so through all forms, you could argue that the, uh, um, the reach of the individual is enhanced by electronic forms and others. You turn on its head the notion of electronic surveillance. You turn it again, as I was talking about in the capillary forms of power, you turn it again to subvert uh, power itself. And in that sense, therefore, you see the walls covered in uh, graffiti uh, against the regime itself. But of course, not just occupations of public spaces, the burning of destruction of places that are uh, clearly part of the apparatus uh, of power itself. Part of the power of the demonstration wasn't just the power of occupying a public space, it was to occupy and to demonstrate in front of institutions that should have been public but had been long appropriated by those in power. So you have the uh, demonstrations in front of the courthouse in Benghazi, in front of the parliament in Tunis, uh, in front of the courts and the parliament in Cairo, in front of the university in Sana'a. You have, in a sense, people reclaiming what should belong to the public and what is shamefully been allowed to become something altogether different in the possession of a small number of people. And of course, as I said, you have the torching of the buildings. This is the NDP building going up in flames uh, in Cairo in 2011. Uh, so effectively, the torching of buildings that are associated with the production of the manufactured public, the false public that in a sense justifies uh, as grotesque a name as the National Democratic Party of Egypt. Uh, and equally in Tunis, the burning out of uh, uh, buildings associated with the, uh, with the ruling RCD party. And this is one, of course, after it had a makeover by JR, who is, as some of you may know, somebody who's done these extraordinary powerful uh, images of ordinary people uh, in public sites to, in a sense, 
give a face to the, uh, to the abstract notion of the public. And here, as you can see, the building, is, having been burnt out, is now repopulated by the faces of uh, the Tunisian public uh, in one form or another. And, of course, in, uh, in Syria and elsewhere, the torching of Ba'ath Party headquarters uh, and so on uh, in many ways. So these are, again, clear ways in which public space becomes physically a way of defeating uh, a regime that has depended upon public space as part of its constitution of power. But there's also the aspect, which in a sense I've already touched on, of the symbolic power uh, of uh, uh, the occupation and the changing of public space and the effects on the nature of power itself. First of all, as I said, it gives uh, the lie to the government's claim that it speaks uh, for the public. These are wonderful pictures from the book by Karima Khalil, Messages from Tahrir, where, as you know, in the center of Tahrir, there are no walls, so you put your messages on other things. You put it on your shoe, on your chest, on your body, you put it on your baby, uh, and you hold them up, uh, in a sense, to make the point you want to make. So, in a sense, these are the voices of a mobilized public uh, against uh, the, uh, the lie that the government speaks for them. On the contrary, the significance, in other words, is a new order is coming into being inscribed in many ways through these graffiti uh, into uh, a, a contrary message uh, to uh, that which had existed before. It's for that very reason, of course, that you have not only physically but symbolically the ferocity of government attempts to reclaim public space. And we've all witnessed that in 2011 and now in 2012 as well. That is through the violence of the security forces, whether that's in Libya, Bahrain, attempts in Tunisia and Egypt, and of course uh, the uh, continuing horrors of the Syrian government's uh, efforts to uh, make an example of Homs. And you could argue that if the body is a weapon, as it is in many senses in the reconstitution physically of the public in the public space, so you could argue the Syrian government uh, has decided to treat it as a weapon as well and to dismember it. And so in a sense, the mass bombardment of civilian areas is a key part of it. It's not just about sadism. It's not just about uh, a, a, a dictatorial regime. It's actually making a very political point about the dismembering of the physical aspect of the body as a weapon to show that the, it's the regime can still uh, call uh, into power much greater forces than that. And you've seen that in the preemptive show of force in Algeria uh, in 2011. You've seen it in organized counter-demonstrations in uh, Yemen, Syria, Bahrain, and Libya, mixed with a certain amount of violence. In Cairo, you've seen it in the counter-publics that have been reassembled in places like Abyssinia uh, and Mahandassin. And, of course, one saw it in Bahrain with the demolition of the Pearl Roundabout. So, Clearly, there is something here that the regimes realize is actually a key component of their power. It's not just about losing face. It is actually a key component of their power. So a symbolic aspect of this becomes uh, an important part of it. And, of course, equally, in a politics of resistance, the attempts to reverse uh, the message of contempt and brutal behavior in public, to transform public space away from being the site where you got slapped uh, by the uh, police, as uh, someone sent me an Egyptian uh, uh, video of uh, the uh, uprisings and the occupation of Tahrir, it was preceded by about 10 minutes of video clips of people simply being slapped and humiliated over the last 10, 15 years, snatched on the streets of Cairo, Alexandria, Suez, Ismailia, and so on. So a notion that this was the public space was the place in which you 
were, were able to be humiliated uh, by the regime, you turn it on its head. So in a sense, the power of, for instance, uh, Mohamed Bouazizi's imagined example was a power to show that public space is now for the reconstitution of the active individual, an act of self-immolation, which had immense symbolic power. Equally, you could argue uh, the uh, Facebook site uh, for We Are All uh, Khalid Saeed was exactly, again, a counter to what had happened to Khalid Saeed. Khalid Saeed's body was thrown onto the street, mutilated by the police, to show as an example what they could do and of the power of the regime. But to turn that into an instrument of resistance negates that power completely, and so in a sense became a key part of it. Uh, and uh, equally, of course, the authorities use it as well. Horrendous videos used by the uh, uh, Syrian authorities to show what they can do to people who defy them in one form or another. So in a sense, the reinforcement of the power of uh, the regime over public space is not only actual, but in a sense is uh, amplified by the ways in which it's, uh, it's put forward. Finally, the question is, what are the efforts to uh, represent the public? In other words, how is public space uh, associated with this notion of recreating the citizenry, recreating an active citizenry uh, in microcosm? Uh, looking, in other words, at people's identity as political citizens, regardless of the differences among them. And clearly, again, one of the performances has not been just a performance against the regime, it's been a self-constitutive performance of constituting uh, an active public, an active public that is performing the nation or performing the identity of the public itself. One saw it very much clearly in Tahrir, the, the very public performances of Christian and Muslim to indicate uh, a, a unity of the Egyptian people regardless of religious difference. You hear it in the chants in uh, the Syrian uh, uh, towns where people were demonstrating calling one, one, Syrians uh, one. And you saw it clearly in the visible joining of women as active and key members of uh, uh, the demonstrations and the occupations as citizens, as members of the public, not as segregated, not as different, but actually as full citizens and members of uh, the public in one form or another. Of course, on all these fronts, and this is what I want to get at, the regimes try to disrupt it. Uh, and so in that sense, therefore, you see very clearly how the regimes have tried to disrupt both not simply the physical occupation of public space as a key form of resistance, not simply uh, the use of the body as an instrument and a weapon of resistance, but also clearly trying to oppose and disrupt the image that's given of a unified or a consolidated and active public. And one's seen it in Bahrain with the uh, allegation uh, that all the unrest is blamed on sectarianism, that there's a Shia Iranian connection, uh, attempt to mobilize Sunnis and others against it. Uh, you've seen it in Egypt by uh, the uh, outrageous uh, uh, claims by the uh, Egyptian state broadcasting authorities when there were the um, uh, attacks on Copts in, in Egypt and when Copts protested and then of course at Maspero itself, the television headquarters, uh, which understandably uh, uh, was the target of fury uh, by many in Egypt. You saw it there as well, the notion that somehow Egypt is not one, the public is not one. There is a fundamental divide between the two. And so you get this transition, again, exemplified quite well in what happens to this rather wonderful graffiti of the man on the bicycle with the Eshbaladi on his head uh, driving towards a tank, which has a kind of uh, a slightly genial image to it uh, by Ganzia, but it was transformed after Maspero. It's the same graffito 
the same place, but clearly with a very different message, with people being crushed under the tank, blood on the wheels of the tank. In other words, identifying exactly where the horror is now, where uh, the power is now, and what kinds of power are being used uh, to uh, destroy uh, the unity of the Egyptian people. And the same is true when, uh, under the military uh, rulers of Egypt, uh, women were targeted in the attacks, in the demonstrations, again, to disrupt this notion that somehow a public of citizens, regardless of gender, uh, is a key component of an active citizenship. And this is a, a women's demonstration against the SCAF, against the Supreme Council of the Armed Forces, in the wake of the very visible, and for once caught on film, humiliation of a woman uh, in the public space in Egypt itself. And if, again, if you think about that image of the woman being humiliated, that is so in line with what had gone before in terms of the use of public space to demonstrate who can and who cannot play a part in public life. And clearly, in this sense, in the military view, women should not play a part in that. Equally, you've heard it in Syria, the accusations that uh, sectarian division, the blame of the uprisings on al-Qaeda, and then at the same time using uh, a largely sectarian militia, the Shabiha, for uh, uses of one kind or another uh, that will reinforce and almost, in a sense, uh, uh, reproduce uh, the sectarian divisions that do exist socially, but to try and politicize them to demonstrate that there isn't a Syrian public that there isn't a public that is outraged at the way in which they have been uh, ruled uh, for all these decades. Equally in Yemen, uh, until he finally left the country, Ali Abdullah Saleh would occasionally pipe up uh, with saying that demonstrations were very improper conduct for women. So in a sense, what the uh, uh, Supreme Council of the Armed Forces had physically done in Egypt, uh, uh, Ali Abdullah Saleh was happy to talk about and license, which again was to focus on the gender of the body, not simply on the body as an opponent, but try and split the body of the public into gendered sections in some form or another. And equally, one heard it in the spokesman of the Libyan government uh, blaming both tribal violence and al-Qaeda for uh, the uprisings in Libya in one form or another. But it does leave one with the question that even without these efforts by uh, the uh, regimes of one form to claw back uh, that notion of a fragmented public, a mobilized public is, after all, always a plural citizenry. And the notion that somehow, because you constitute a public, you're constituting people of the same mind is, of course, the dangerous road down which you could argue many of these regimes began uh, so long ago. So one question that's asked, and I'll try and uh, think about what that might mean uh, in the last part of the talk, is to think, is the public moment also a transitory one? That the constitution of the public in public space, the reactivation, the reawareness of what it means to be a public actor at last, is that just a transitory moment? Can it reassemble? Can it, in other words, find occasion, such as the hanging of Ben Ali's portrait on the walls of Tunis, to reassemble, to recreate that sense of what it means to be uh, a uh, collective against uh, those who would rather keep power in the hands of very few. And clearly, that brings me to the final part of the uh, uh, aspect of the occupation of public space, which is uh, the violence, what happens when violence is introduced into the equation of resistance. So if one thinks of the occupation of public space as not exactly non-violent, but the notion that it becomes uh, a way in which you use your body, you use your body to perform, you in a sense create 
through non-violent means, a different way of organizing power. What happens when uh, violence comes into the equation of resistance? Well, one of the things one could argue, just as that first shot of people being chased around Mahal al-Kubra, that in a sense, the use of violence by those in power strips bare its pretensions, and the regimes act like armies of occupation. And if one thing one has seen across the Middle East in the last year is that for all the talk of national uh, uh, autonomy and independence, these are armies of occupation. And so in a sense, by acting like an army of occupation, you lay bare effectively the myth that somehow the people and the army are one, because they're not. There is a sense here, in other words, where the uh, armed resistance uh, becomes part of it. And you could argue that uh, this is, again, a sticker for which Kanzia got arrested as he went around Tahrir actually sticking on people's uh, uh, things to try and, as it were, give the lie to the uh, notion uh, that somehow the army and the people were one. As he says here, uh, this is now available for an unlimited period of time the mask of freedom. So to place the mask of freedom, but to back it up by uh, a, a very ferocious system indeed. The other graffiti artist called Sad Panda went a bit further than that, and in Mohammed Mahmoud Street uh, in Cairo uh, painted this uh, rather uh, striking picture of a uniformed Egyptian soldier putting a baby on a bonfire, uh, which you could argue could stand for many of those armies of occupation, Bahrain, Syria, Libya, uh, Tunis at certain moments in not the army but the security forces uh, uh, and in that sense therefore stands as those who want to give the lie to the notion uh, that the army is the representative of the people. Far from it. It will be the enforcer of a new kind of order and for that reason therefore has often provoked armed resistance. And armed resistance is understandable. It becomes a way of defending yourself. It becomes a way of, uh, uh, of uh, taking revenge uh, it also becomes, of course, a way of assaulting the last bastion of power, even if you need NATO to be on your side uh, to actually get you there. But there is a sense here in which it also becomes an attack on the collaborators within. And this is, of course, to some extent, uh, one of the problems of, the, uh, of those who pick up arms, that the, uh, the enemy isn't always in front of you. It may be suspected to be behind you. And if it is, what are the implications for the solidarity of the public uh, in such uh, uh, a condition. So clearly, again, one of the problems is that violence accelerates and sharpens uh, the fragmentation of the mobilized public. And for that very reason, not just to kill people, not just to clear people from public space, you can see why uh, regimes find violence a very useful way of reasserting uh, their forms of power. What conclusions can one come to, therefore? If you think about the uprisings of the last uh, year or so in the context of the politics of resistance. The question is, when does resistance end? When does, in that sense, the up, not simply the uprisings end, but the, uh, the dynamic for the uprisings end? And here, I think, one of the greatest challenges, given what I said about the occupation of public space and the reconstitution of the political public, is the challenge of institutionalizing uh, public space, of really empowering the people people who had come out sensing their power onto the streets in a public way, how do you then institutionalize that? How do you then make that into something that will really change the configuration of power uh, itself? And there are a few things to, to say about this, I think. That is, the first challenge is, how do you move from a performing the public to its institutionalization? How do you harness the enthusiasm uh, and indeed the division of labor uh, required uh, by institutionalization 
and fear that much of that enthusiasm will be lost as people go back to their constituencies, as they vote, as they begin to get a more jaded view of power itself, as the distance emerges inevitably between ordinary people and obscure institutions. And elections may be part of this, it may be a necessary part of this, but clearly they're not sufficient uh, in any way. The public, in other words, through the election, no longer becomes symbolic, it becomes real through representation, uh, but will the power remain symbolic? And you could say one of the uh, arguments or one of the lessons that's been learnt in many places is that elections have often been a way of diluting uh, public power. Uh, and, of course, there are many forces both outside and inside the region who are very happy to see the reality of public power being diluted, to ensure that the public is defanged, if you like, and transformed into the popular assemblies uh, that one was so familiar with over the last 50 uh, or 60 years. There are also forces at work who want to exclude significant portions of the public, whether on the basis of ideology, gender, religion, or whatever it happens to be. And so, again, uh, allied with those who want to fragment it, fragment it anyway. And there's also, of course, active resistance to the new order. You could argue Libya is seeing one of the effects of, uh, and the problematic effects, of leaderless armed resistance. So of armed res leaderless resistance that is indeed armed with the competition between militias. So again, I think that is, I have, there are no easy answers to it, but this notion of how do you transform the performing and resisting public into the institutionalized public where power has been relocated into public hands. Secondly, uh, public performances of resistance can often, of course, reinforce existing elites. That this is the double-edged uh, edged, um, impact of strategies of disorder. Disorder can be used to unravel power, but can also, of course, reinforce the myth of power that somehow, again, this is time to go back, not on the square, this is time to, uh, uh, to go back home, uh, this is, in a sense, time to close the debate, this is time to narrow the options, this is to time to transform what was plural for a moment into the one again. And so, again, one has to think about how that has sometimes had uh, a, uh, an ambiguous outcome uh, across the Middle East over the last year. The third aspect is, of course, uh, the way in which class inequalities and privileges are very adept at clothing themselves in a language of civility, as we know from our own historical experience, and of religiosity. So in a sense, one has to uh, think about the difficulty of mobilizing resistance against emerging forms of uh, hegemony. And this, of course, raises a question about the enduring forms of privilege, the enduring forms of class privilege and exclusivity. So, again, the problem of resistance to remove a symbolic figure, but resistance to remove an embedded system that has mutually supported from uh, a, a dominant common sense that comes from outside as well, is clearly a much tougher task. However, having started with those three rather gloomy aspects of the difficulty of institutionalizing public uh, uh, um, the public into a, a power, uh, the difficulty of, as it were, using disorder effectively and not and unambiguously uh, to uh, dislodge power, and the problem of handing power over effectively to long-established class uh, uh, inequalities. One has also to say that, and this is where I would argue, for the power uh, of resistance as social memory. And this, I think, is something that one might think about in terms of 2011. In other words, social memory, not merely nostalgia, but an active force that creates, first of all, a sense of collective potential, uh, an awareness of what we are capable of. 
Uh, also, a sense of strategy in the understanding of uh, the power of an existing repertoire that can be deployed against uh, authoritarian or exclusive power. And above all, and I think this has been a clear part, and a, one would say one of the extraordinary contributions of those who were so brave within the, uh, uh, the events of the last uh, year, is the rupture of the complacency of contempt. The achievement, in other words, I would argue, of the Arab uprisings in a politics of resistance is to remind those who rule of the conditional nature of their power. And just as the public service announcement under the face of bin Ali said that dictatorship never sleeps, well, perhaps nor does resistance either. Thank you very much, Charles, for, uh, uh, I would say, one of the most uh, comprehensive, thoughtful uh, lectures that I've heard on the Arab Spring so far. I think the, to, if, if we want to just sum up what Charles has said, I would say um, it was historically deep, uh, theoretically rich, and visually spectacular, I would say. I think you're inviting uh, quite a lot of uh, us to rethink the old paradigms about power and resistance. And the old uh, classics uh, could probably now end up on the shelves in the library. Um, I think um, um, you are proposing a, a serious shift in the way we think about these concepts. Um, not only um, the Arab world has forced uh, quite a lot of political scientists and scholars to rethink their old paradigms uh, and this is actually to their credit that uh, uh, there is a serious revision going on now in political science uh, uh, corners uh, about power uh, uh, and politics um, and uh, thanks to the uh, uh, last uh, year and as you said the previous decade possibly when all these mythologies uh, were crumbling but perhaps not many people took notice. Thank you again for a very, very rich uh, presentation. Um, what we're, I plan to do now is to open the session for question and answer. Um, I propose to take one question at a time rather than group them. Uh, and please uh, 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 introduce yourself, give us your name and affiliation, and make your question as brief as possible. I'm sure um, in the audience there's so many people who are just you know, waiting for this moment of question and answer. And uh, also I would suggest that Charles uh, is brief so that we could um, get as many questions as possible. Um, let me take the first question from this gentleman there. Uh, my name's Mike uh, Dival. I uh, worked out in Bahrain 2007-2011 uh, in higher education reform and was a, a witness to uh, many of the things that went on there. So I'd like to ask uh, Professor Tripp his views on, uh, firstly, the demographic 
dimensions uh, of the uprisings, particularly with regard to gender and uh, generation, which seem particularly important uh, to events as I saw them unfold. Um, uh, And uh, secondly, the degree of fit or lack of fit between the aspirations of people involved in the uprising as as expressed in the public uh, uh, graffiti, the popular culture, the things we've been looking at this evening, uh, and the range of uh, more established political opposition movements that are available to them. I'm thinking of things like Al-Wafaq in Bahrain and uh, El Ikhwan in, uh, in, in Egypt. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I think on the, the first question, what's interesting about the ways in which you have two, quest- two aspects of this question. One is, uh, you could talk catalyst. What is it that gets people moving? What does it get people outraged? And the other is, how you then constitute it? How do you constitute a public? Uh, and it seemed to me that both the points you mentioned, both in terms of gender, Uh, difference and humiliation and also in terms of uh, youth have been uh, an extraordinary part of it and I think that youth in this sense is because of course young people, I hate to say this in an audience like this, are the first to feel the cold breath of unemployment. Uh, They don't get a job, when they get a job they're the first to be dismissed and so on and clearly for many people across much of the uh, Middle East Uh, the failure of the regimes wasn't just a a mythical failure, it was a very real failure, no job and so on. And so Azizi, in a sense, encapsulates an aspect of that on which was piled humiliation. Uh, But I think the other aspect of gender is is interesting as well, because one of the facts that became very clear in this is that women saw themselves, young women and uh, older women, middle-aged women, saw themselves as much citizens and active citizens as any of the men themselves. And so, in that sense, one of the uh, confirmations, if you like, of the emergence of a public was not its gender blindness, but its gender constitution. Uh, and I think that that's been as much the case in Bahrain as it's been in, uh, in, in Egypt. And one of the attempts by power is, of course, to divide that, to try and humiliate, to single out women to humiliate. So in a sense you could argue that the areas that uh, power is seeking to fragment tells you something about why they're touching on a raw nerve and that seemed to be a key aspect of that there as well. Um, I think the the other question about established political parties, again, one of the unease is not simply the regime didn't know how to deal with leaderless uprisings. Some of the political parties found it really troubling as well. And, of course, they saw that less as leaderless than ripe for exploitation by some of their political rivals, even within their own organization. So I think my impression was that some of the cannier political organizations ensured that they too latched onto it, sometimes with a little nudging from uh, other members within the organization. Those who are somewhat remiss have simply disappeared in most important respects. Thank you. I'll take one from the middle and then uh, from, the, uh, from the middle here. Okay, well, the people on the... Yes, please. Uh, can you draw any differences between regimes who are monarchies in the Arab world and um, uh, republics, like, for example, the case of uh, Jordan, Saudi Arabia, also Bahrain? I mean, Bahrain has an ethnic dimension and a religious dimension, but generally, can you draw any uh, big differences in, in between re- the resistance in, in both types of states? Sorry, your name? Uh, sorry. Oh, sorry. Um, my name is Nasrin Abarf. Um, Yes, I say on one level one could argue there's no difference between monarchies and um, uh, republics in terms of how they exercise power. 
because the monarchical president was modeling themselves on kings and monarchs. However, in terms of resistance, it has been more problematic in some senses, or a slightly different pattern has emerged. And part of that is that the monarchies of all, from Morocco to Jordan to Saudi Arabia, Bahrain has screwed it up monumentally, but the others have managed to do this wonderful sidestep between themselves and the prime minister and the government. So in a sense, they've managed to, in a sense, the monarch has managed to pretend that somehow the, the, the government isn't much to do with them and they can be displaced. Uh, and I think that in um, the, in, so that in Jordan and Morocco, that's, I don't know if it's worked, but it hasn't, it got rid of resistance, but it certainly made it harder because, in a sense, resistance gets turned against the failings of the government who can be displaced. One could argue in Jordan, how often can you keep dismissing prime ministers who are showing themselves incompetent, corrupt, and so on? So there's clearly a kind of a resource pool question there uh, in Jordan, which I think King Abdullah is going to fight fear against. I think Saudi Arabia is obviously very different in the sense that <laughs> there's no sidestepping there, but you can uh, argue that there is a very ferocious security state in power, which has already a sense of how to deal with resistances and has hitherto, and Madawi would know far more about this than I do, managed to fragment the public. In other words, the notion of publics in Saudi Arabia has been problematic for all sorts of reasons, and I think that that's something that they've paid a huge amount of attention to. So one concentrates on you know, the $36 billion dollars being dispensed and so on. It's not just that. It's, it's how you fragment it. And Bahrain's, I suggested, it's a bit of a problem if your prime minister is also your uncle, uh, then uh, you can't really sidestep that and he won't let you anyway. So I think that uh, it's not so much between monarchies and republics. It's really, you could argue, the strategies that are, that are open to some of these people to sidestep or not. Because you could say in some of the presidential systems, it was very difficult for the presidential monarch to sidestep. He could be sidestepped, and that happened in Egypt effectively, that the military dismissed the prime minister and the president and the king and whatever. Uh, but there was uh, a sense in which that was harder for him to do personally. So I think in terms of strategies of resistance, what's interesting is that some of those are very similar. That in terms of public space, again, the occupation of public space and the threat of it in Saudi Arabia at one point, it brings out the worst, you could argue, in, or, or the most characteristic uh, in terms of government. And that's whether you're a republic or a monarchy, it doesn't matter. The, the reconstitution of the public is something they all fear. Uh, thank you. Yes, please. My name is Saharata. I'm from LSBF. Um, Egyptian, so my question is really about Egypt. Um, and so, in case, in um, I painted a, pay, um, a picture here that the army is really involved. I'm not sure what the army is involved in. Is involved in to go back in the revolution and let people, sh sh let's use the word, not open their mouths or shut them and go back home, or is it um, a lot of people say it's systematic failure from the ar from the army? Uh, because again. Um, we don't know how the army is playing it. Sometimes it's playing it with the people. Sometimes behind the scene it's trying to be played or to being it's being shown that it's played with the people. So what's your opinion on that? Thank you. This is a lecture in itself. The army in Egypt is also, of course, an enigma in itself. But I think there are some ways in which it's behaved, or at least the leadership of the army. And again, one of the problems is one doesn't really know about the... Um, 
the, the multiple identities and loyalties within the officer corps itself. This is something that's very difficult for understandable reasons for social science to, uh, to produce. But nevertheless, the way they behave, or the way they behaved, you could argue, has been uh, as anyone would behave who wants to protect their investment. And in some senses, the army's investment in Egypt, both materially in terms of its connections with economic forms of power in Egypt, the, the military industries, but also the non-military industries that are dead, is a key part of, you could say, the pension plan, the sense of status, the, what it is to be an army officer in Egypt. So you could argue that they're uh, seeking to protect that. But on the other hand, they're also trying to protect their investment in the way they know how. And the way they know how, or knew how, was the way they've learned for the last 40 or 50 years, which is effectively uh, to repress public manifestations, to send people back to work, uh, to threaten people with the fear of division or with the scare of the foreigner uh, and the hidden hand uh, behind it. And of course, so many Egyptians have seen through that, it makes it very difficult to maintain that, uh, that uh, myth. And one of the things one could argue is that after all that rather, I think, overly sentimental it, army and people, you know, hand in hand, um, is, uh, or hand in hand army of the people, uh, was what happened in November of 2011. Uh, and one could argue that that's where one saw really what power was about. And that's where another slogan emerged, which was bullet in the eye army and people. And in a sense, that was what happened in Mohammed Mahmoud and around it. So in a sense, when it comes to that, that's what they want to uh, ensure. So a notion, they still have a very, if you like, Mubarakwa's, Nasiris, Sadat-esque, whatever you call it, Farukian notion of public order. And they want to keep public order and discipline going. Uh, and uh, as far as the other is concerned, they want to protect their investment. So one could argue with some Egyptians, if they're so keen on protecting their investment, it's going to begin to contradict the other aspect of it. And this is the only hope. But whether it will over the next uh, year or so is perhaps too soon to say. About a couple of, three years ago, I was in Cairo for a conference. I, I did have a question. Please, uh, I was, uh, can I can you hear me? Sorry. Could you please introduce yourself? Robin Hanna, graduate NAC, member of Kingston Peace Council. I, um, about a couple of years ago, heard speak in this very room, not this particular room, but here at the NAC, a lecture by the then First Lady of Egypt, Suzanne Mubarak, um, on women's rights in Egypt. And when, in my trip to Cairo, I did meet him, I just had a brief conversation with a man, and we compared, he compared her to Mother Teresa and Princess Diana. Now, I understand that Mubarak is now in jail, or is in hospital on trial. I, I don't quite know what's happened to his wife, Suzanne Mubarak, but she seemed to me a very decent lady, and generally concerned about women's rights in Egypt, but I understand she might be on trial or so. I don't know if you know about any of you about this, and what's happened to her. I don't know in detail. I must say, I'm not an intimate of the, of the Mubarak family, I'm afraid to say. Uh, there was some story that she had had a, what, what was called a Raisa Gorbachev moment, which is uh, effectively a, uh, uh, a stroke or some kind of medical setback as a result. But one never knows, again, whether that was really part of it to gain sympathy for how terrible they're treating uh, the family in this way. It may have been the sight of her two ghastly sons beating each other up because they blamed each other for what had uh, been happened to their father. So... There's a, it's very difficult to know, but certainly one of the things one would feel like, if, if you think about the, um, 
the danger of the myth of the father of the nation, clearly the danger of the mother of the nation is just as dangerous a myth. And clearly, again, one of the things that people, enraged people uh, in many parts of Egypt was how her name was used and her prominence was used to disguise precisely the sinews of power by which patronage was operated, by which non-government organizations were actually governmental organizations, by which if you didn't conform with what she did, you got a visit from uh, the people who were much nastier than she. And you must remember that one of the reasons it's often said that poor old Professor Saadadine Ibrahim, a sociologist, uh, who was imprisoned and sentenced to hard labor, which d virtually destroyed his health, uh, was so persecuted by the regime because he had supervised the dissertation of Suzanne Mubarak. And it wasn't because he, dis he supervised the dissertation of Suzanne Mubarak that he was persecuted, but he was regarded as somebody who had eaten at the table of the sultan and then had done the worst thing possible, which is to reject the hand of the sultan. And therefore, they wanted to make an example of him, which they did. He tried to make an example of them by giving this wonderful lecture at AUC, saying, having been arrested and had the frighteners put on him, uh, and he gave a lecture entitled, What I Did in My Summer Holidays, uh, which was basically a story of his imprisonment and then the real... Uh, nasties came to visit, uh, thanks to Suzanne Mubarak. Yes, Hello, my name is Corinne Delage. I'm an architect, and I was very uh, intrigued by the fluidity uh, with which you moved between uh, the public sphere of politics and the public physical space of cities. And I was wondering whether you had any observation on the development of cities in the Middle East and particularly regarding the trend which is the privatization of public spaces in all sorts of ways, uh, gated communities, uh, you know, the river, uh, the banks of the River Nile being privatized by clubs and things like that and the po potential impact on the role of public space in that debate. Yes, again, I think that's a, another hour's lecture or so, but I think you raised some very interesting questions because one could argue that, as you said, uh, if you looked at the way in which public space has been used, not just in Middle Eastern cities, but say Cairo as an example, there's a very fascinating aspect to it. There's one thing you mentioned, which was the private, the gated communities that emerge. In other words, people effectively appropriating what was often public land, actually military land, but because they're well connected, they create a gated community about it. But the other aspect is that something like 35% of the population of Cairo live in Ashwaiyat, which is <laughs> rendered as informal housing in a rather curious sense. And um, in fact, I had a student who worked on this, and he was looking to see how that was actually a strategy of governance, what he called the negative governance of Cairo, how you allow this to happen, what seems to be against the regulations. In other words, you array, as I was saying right at the beginning, you, you create a whole array of minor uh, array, uh, regulations, planning laws, and so on, and then you arbitrarily let people infringe them. But the great thing is by letting them infringe them, they're always a criminal. So in a sense, you can always get them. So, so in one form or another, you can get them physically, but you can get them through the apparatus of the state. But they chose not to get them because, of course, by then, 35% of the population of Cairo was in it. So you have this, I think, a very interesting and curious dynamic of, as it were, the appropriation of, of public space, the privatization, if you like, if once that's the appropriate term, of public space for both the creation of the gated community at one end of the spectrum and the ashwariyat at the other. What happens in the middle? And that's interesting because that's, in a sense, the places where both in theory, meet. 
And one of the interesting things about uh, Tahrir and other manifestations, it was reasserting these as public spaces, whereas before, those who lived in gated communities never had to stay, step in Tahrir. As you know, you can, you can drive across Cairo on flyovers and motorways and never actually touch ground uh, in, in any sense. You never had to see the people who live under the bridge. And so in many ways, you could argue that uh, one of the interesting things of, of uh, Tahrir and elsewhere, it was creating a public which hitherto had lived in very separate and very convenient for the regime, separate spaces and lived different lives. You come together, you have something much more powerful. Right, well, um, just I think whoever designed this table definitely <laughs> wanted to segment the public in this room. There is a corner there that I can't see, and I don't want to discriminate against away. it. So, yes, please. Uh, Jane Sharp from King's Cross the Road. Um, my question was really to what extent the young people in the Arab uprisings owe some kind of intellectual debt to people like, um, well, theoretically, people like Jean Sharp in the States, but also Gandhi and Václav Havel and um, Martin Luther King, in, in the sense of keeping the uprising nonviolent. And, and I was intrigued by what you said about when violence comes in. And is it your view that these uprisings actually are only successful insofar as they remain nonviolent? I think that the, the study of nonviolence is something that, whether it was in Egypt or has been in Palestine and elsewhere, a realization that two things happen when you use violence. One is you either play the game of those who are very well prepared to use violence against you. And so in a sense you fit into not only, you don't only need to become their targets physically, but you fit into the myth that they've created about how they face uh, armed uprising and so on. Uh, but also the notion that uh, in many circumstances it is counterproductive. It creates a very different kind of, not a public, but it creates command structures, smuggling structures, weapon structures. And in many senses one of the uh, dilemmas clearly that's been explored very effectively in Palestine has been the exploration of how effective is non-violence in a condition of implicit institutional violence. Um, interestingly, uh, this debate was rife in the Muslim Brotherhood in Syria in the 1970s. The 1970s, uh, the Muslim Brotherhood in Syria then, I, I've followed it less since, uh, was effectively a federation of associations. So you had uh, group in Aleppo, group in Damascus, group in Hama, Homs, and so on. And there was a, a real debate about how do you encounter a regime which is basically founded on violence, the Ba'athist regime. And so there was a very strong lobby in Aleppo and Hama, Homs, and Latakia to some extent, which is the only language these people understand is that of violence. You have to use violence not only to regain your dignity, but actually to oppose it. Interestingly, the Muslim Brotherhood in Damascus had a very different argument. They said, if you, if you do that, you play into their game. They will not only use massive violence against you, but you will destroy yourselves. And as we know, those who went for violent resistance won the argument, but lost uh, the struggle. Now, whether those who are advocating non-violence will win the struggle, I think is a much more problematic question. And clearly, in some circumstances, those who might have been advocating a uh, a non-violent alternative in Libya or a non-violent alternative in uh, other places have been squeezed out by effectively a regime that uses violence, but also by other factors, but a regime that uses violence precisely to squeeze out the possibility of non-violence. And if you look at the, again, I would argue, if you look back to Syria, one of the 
arguments you could argue for the strategic use of violence, not just the arbitrary use of violence, is precisely to do that. To, in other words, use such violence against peaceful demonstration that you, in the end, begin to set up a dynamic for the picking up of the gun and the use of violence, and then the possible dangers of fragmentation. So I think that, uh, but again, there have been real doubts about whether nonviolence has produced enough of a change. So in Egypt, people are saying, well, what was the point? It's all gone to be the same thing in some form or another. Tunisia, more success in some senses. So again, I'm not sure that it's violence and nonviolence only which turns it, but clearly there have been common arguments, whether it was in, under British imperial rule, whether it was uh, under Israeli occupation, or whether it's under the rule of Mubarak or of Assad. Uh, and I think those, those questions are still much more contingent upon what's happening in that place at that time. But I would agree with you that the example of the power of it elsewhere has been huge. And you know, there's no denying the effect of the power of the visibility of the Tunisian uprising in Egypt, clearly, as people saw that. And they saw that just masses of people on the street can somehow flood and destroy uh, the capacity of violence of the regime. Uh, then clearly, that, that gives a, a, a heart to it. Right, well, let me just uh, abuse my chair now and ask a question. Um, I mean, basically, two that come out of the question on violence. I mean, you use the term the, the body as a weapon. Um, uh, the interesting thing is what I would like to know from you is um, what do you think was the catalyst that shifted this body from being a real weapon in the, for example, form of violence that we witnessed over the last um, maybe 20, 30 years in terms of suicide bombing, where the body becomes the ultimate weapon. And it's been going on with uh, secular and religious groups from the Kurds to Sri Lanka to Hezbollah to the jihadis. Suddenly, uh, this body was transformed and appropriated by those protesters in, order, in, in a very colorful way, but also in, the, the, in occupying physical space. So what, what, is, um, you know, the, what was the trigger that uh, made this shift possible, I think? The, the second question is about, um, uh, the question was asked by the lady there about constitutional monarchies and having the, the prime minister as sort of the buffer zone between the people and the king. Um, in a way, um, um, you know, constitutional mark is uh, designed for that purpose, to, to, to create that sort of father, remote father, you know, God, the, the, the remote God, uh, but uh, who can only uh, act through uh, someone. And this, this uh, actually, you know, solves the problem for these monarchies um, in the sense that they uh, try to have this sort of soft image, soft power, mm. and then you hire and fire the the uh, prime ministers, and even in the case of Kuwait, you could just you know, dissolve parliament mm. and have another election, another, and keep the prime minister. <laughs> so there are different ways. Um, and in, in your view, I mean, how long could the game continue to be like that in these kind of monarchies? So just yeah. two questions. I, I think on the first one, mm. as you say, quite rightly, uh, you know, people think of the body as a weapon, they talk about suicide bombing. But actually, there seems to be something quite interesting there. It's not just about violence and non-violence. It's also about the notion of what the body is. And clearly, when you look at the testimonies of those who left behind testimonies who became suicide bombers, there was a notion of powerlessness and therefore a notion that this was a way of making the body powerful uh, as an individual body, as a, as a single weapon, as in a sense something that becomes uh, uh, a, a weapon that can get through any kind of defensive system, but still very much the notion of the individual body. Well, what's interesting is 
I don't know whether it was a catalyst or something, but a very different discourse emerges when you think about the body as a weapon in terms of mass occupation. And then it was a notion of the body as a collective solidarity. You know, we are all Khalid Saeed, we are all whoever. There is a sense of a solidarity, a sense of uh, bodies together form a, uh, a, 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 a barrier that the regime cannot deal with. So, ironically, and that maybe go back to the question about nonviolence, is that if you're seriously considering nonviolence, it's very difficult to be a nonviolent individual and think you're going to succeed because all those videos of the Egyptian, radiating the Egyptian revolution, were of individuals being slapped around in the street and not resisting at all uh, and just being swiped off the street. So, suddenly, this, this sense of how you can be powerful together in an effective way strikes me as the thing that changed. And I'm not sure, again, whether it's a catalyst, because one could argue, well, the people at Mahalla discovered that a long time ago, but it was in a confined space. Uh, people in, in other parts of the Middle East have discovered it at other moments. And you could argue the whole power of the anti-colonial nationalist uprisings in many uh, Middle Eastern states was precisely to discover that, that you are part of the nation. You aren't simply an individual who's humiliated by a colonial overlord. You can actually act together. And I think that in that sense, I would regard these are two different, you could say, registers or idioms of how you think of the body as a political uh, instrument. And I think that has repercussions for how one thinks about uh, violence and nonviolence possibly as well. And the constitutional monarchy question, yes, I think that the, the question of uh, monarchs and their ability to sidestep is an interesting question. You could argue that uh, you know, people like Mubarak uh, thought he could sidestep it also as well. You appoint a new prime minister and you hope you can get away with it. And I think the, the key question uh, comes when, when you could argue the, uh, the circumstances come together whereby the monarch can no longer escape. Uh, and the monarch can no longer escape, clearly, if they are so identified, not simply with the image of power, but with the actual exercise of power. And I think this is the problem for Bahrain now, that there is a monarch uh, uh, who has not simply um, tried to pretend to be father of the nation, but clearly, without whose say-so, none of the things that could have happened. There are contradictory things happening, but none of the things could have happened that have taken place. And you could argue that this was, of course, uh, one of the uh, problems for uh, King Faisal in Saudi Arabia. He was, to some extent, killed by his own family, not by mass demonstrations, because he was seen as being the person responsible uh, in some ways for personalizing and changing things. So there's always that vulnerability of the monarch to being identified with not simply mythical power, but actually physical power as well. And I think that uh, that where that comes together, then, of course, it's a dangerous time for the monarch, unless they can face it down, as you could argue King Hussein of Jordan did at various moments uh, in his career, but not by being soft power, but by being hard power and succeeding in using hard power at certain key moments. Okay, let's go back, yes. Yes, uh, Pasquino, visiting professor at the Law School of LSE. Charles, I wanted to ask you the following question. These uh, Arabic regime are essentially, as you explained, military dictatorship. So the army is probably the crucial political actor. Now, the behavior of the army in Egypt has been very different from the behavior of the army in Syria. How can we make sense of it? It seems that the Egyptian army decided, possibly under American influence, America gives a lot of money to, to, to two countries in the world, Egypt and Israel. The first, number one is Egypt. 
Number two is history. So the, uh, the Egyptian army decided to get rid of Mubarak to, to find some sort of compromise with uh, people. The Syrian army apparently has uh, ultra-criminal policy of all or nothing. So can you help us to understand this difference? Yeah, I think that there's, uh, uh, obviously, there's the contingent. So there are very particular aspects of both Egypt and Syria that are different, and therefore it's not the same system. However, I think on the army question, it's quite interesting, because you could argue that uh, in the Egyptian case, as you quite rightly said, um, they managed to get rid of Mubarak. Now, is that easy to understand? Well, part of it's uh, the belief amongst those in the senior ranks of the armed forces that if they got rid of Mubarak, it would be uh, securing their investment rather than compromising it. So a notion that if this is what it took, that's what it took. And to do that, of course, you could argue the ground had long been laid. There was an extraordinary moment in uh, uh, Egyptian public space, if you like, the life of Egyptian public space in 2009-2010. It was called the War of the Posters, where you suddenly saw these big posters popping up in um, uh, central places in Cairo, uh, uh, extolling the virtues of Gamal Mubarak, the son, the chosen one, you know, the mission for the future, gazing mistily into the future of a neoliberal paradise. Uh, and suddenly, uh, within about a day, each of these posters were not defaced, they were surrounded by posters extolling the virtues of Omar Suleiman to say, this is the man of order, this is what Egypt needs. This is so one could argue that the reading of that by people on the street, ordinary people in Egypt, shows that something quite fundamental had already started to unravel within the government itself, within the, the regime, within the establishment. There was uh, an institutional, uh, if you like, and a, perhaps a personal rivalry uh, that they could exploit. Not that they necessarily went for it immediately, but so in a sense it was a much more understandable thing. I think in Syria the difference is that it, in the way the Syrian armed forces have been constructed, uh, it is far more, at least key units of it, are far more implicated in the system of power itself. In other words, it's not just trying to tell people by Bashar al-Assad that if he goes, they all go, but in a sense it's making sure that they do if he does. And uh, I suppose one of his and his father's key insurance policies was to make sure that that was actually true. So I think what one's seen in Syria, as you quite rightly said, is no mass defections, no great units uh, going, no generals going, no high command splitting as you saw in Libya and elsewhere. Uh, you've seen instead hundreds and thousands possibly of soldiers, ordinary soldiers, uh, uh, leaving uh, an institution that is making them do the most terrible things uh, throughout the country of Syria. So I think that it's to do with not simply the history of the two establishments, but the ways in which these two regimes over time have constituted their military forces in a different way. Because the other model was Tunisia, where in a sense the army was quite happy to stand behind because the army had been degraded, it had been starved of funds, it had been humiliated, its status was rubbish compared to the gendarmerie and the, and the internal security forces. So they looked, they welcomed an opportunity in a sense to show how incompetent the favorites of Ben Ali were. So again, one has to think about the particular history. So it's not, I think, looking only at army is the same everywhere. It isn't clearly, and nor are you saying that. But I think one has to think about the particular histories of it within those countries and how implicated it is in a system of power. Uh, yes, wow. <laughs> That's the back. Yes, please. Very briefly, please, because uh, we want to give more time. 
Hello, my name is Azid. Um, I'm an accounting and finance student here at LSE. Um, I wanted to ask you, what was the, uh, in your opinion, what was the role of uh, the Islamic political movements in the uprisings? And uh, what is your opinion on the current momentum that uh, the, Islamic, the Islamic political movement are having in the region? Thank you. I think, uh, again, it's rather like with the question to the army, you know, that in a sense from different countries, the Islamic political movements not only have differences amongst them, but they act differently in different places because the arena is different. And I think that clearly uh, when you look at the hinterland of opposition, not in other words just the uprisings of 2011, but what 2011 came after, Islamist movements of one form or another have played varying roles in, you could argue, stripping the hegemony of the state from those who rule the state. So I think that whether you agree with them or not, whether they were of the more radical fringe or the less radical fringe, that notion of an alternative voice, uh, which was that of basically calling the lie on authority, calling the lie on power, has been a key role of Islamist movements. It doesn't mean to say that everyone who then joined the uprising was following an Islamist movement, but in a sense, the, the erosion of authority had been a key part of that as well. So I think that that's important. In terms of organization as well, I think it's very important, because in a sense, when you look at many of the neighborhood organizations that were quite important at certain junctures in bringing people out into public squares, they may have been affiliated to pre-existing Islamist organizations, not political parties in the very obvious sense, but in terms of social welfare organizations, associations, uh, the whole networks that, ironically, you could argue the, these sorts of regimes have been very happy to see established uh, because they took away the, from the failings of the welfare state. So you could argue, again, not only in terms of the image of if you like, threadbare authority, Islamist movements have been important, uh, uh, but also in terms of structural effect. Now, in terms of whether that then necessarily translates into an agreement with what Islamist programs or Islamist parties put forward as a program, I think that's still a very uncertain area. And I think that's really interesting because you have, for instance, in Egypt, you have the uh, Freedom and Justice Party, but you also have Al-Nur. Now, both of them are putting themselves forward as Islamist parties, but obviously have rather different views of the political economy, of uh, the nature of social justice, or perhaps even the location of authority and so on. So I think that one of the interesting things to see in the future, and I think the same in Tunisia, to a lesser extent, or to a, to a certain extent as well, is the debate amongst Islamist parties will, which will make those debates no longer, or the key markers of those debates won't be whether they're Islamist or non-Islamist. It'll be whether they're in, front of, in favor of private enterprise or public ownership, whether in favor of freedom of speech or restriction on it. In favor. So in a sense, it's not simply... I, I, Islamism has been an important part of it, but I don't think it's the, what you see as Islamist parties now. Of course, they're Islamic in a certain sense, but they're also political parties. They're also actors in the frame. I'm going to take one more question from this side because there's a bigger group here. <laughs> and then one last uh, question from uh, the left. Yes. My name is um, Mil Alif. Um, I'm from the LSE. Um, I was wondering what your opinion was and if you had any sense of what the relationship between um, the effectiveness of capturing you know, public spaces and the, and the speed in which information is distributed uh, amongst individuals, either locally or internationally. Like, is there any relationship between the two? Hmm. Thank you. Okay. One last question from this side. Yes, please. The lecture focuses on um, Arab individuals' contribution in, in shaping the um, collective public 
sphere as a central component for resistance against dictatorship. I'm wondering if Professor Treb uh, see that it's important to investigate the other part of, or the other side of the story, or the subjective aspect of resistance, how the emerging collective public uh, space um, contributes to shape um, self-realization, to resist self-alienation that Egyptians and other Arabs have been experienced across generations. And this reminds me with uh, what an Egyptian young man said to me uh, by participating in Maidan, Maidan al-Tahrir, this is the first time I feel I am a real man. Yeah, I think uh, two areas of extraordinary interest, I think, in the one minute we have left, but I, I'll, be try, I'll try and do some justice to it, I think. Um, I think in terms of the, the intimate relationship between public space and the dissemination of information is hugely important. And I, I was trying to capture some of it, in a sense, uh, here, which is not simply on, on many levels. One is this notion that you're visibly in the public space. And if people wanted to think about the power of that uh, at certain moments in history, they just have to look at 1978 in Tehran and look at what the occupation of public space did for, and the visible occupation, this is pre-mobile phones, pre-Twitter and so on, and you could see that the physical occupation of it was hugely important both for communication amongst those who were opposed to the Shah and so on, but also in terms of the television coverage of it, because the television coverage was then communicated outside, so the message that was coming outside, the Shah has lost his grip. And so inevitably, if the Shah depended, as he did, very much on external support, then the question if the Shah has lost his grip, people begin to move, move aside in some form or another. Uh, and equally, uh, it was extraordinarily important for other parts of Iran. The places that might not have had direct communication, which the government, but could still see the television pictures and the news and so on. So I think in that sense, uh, the physical occupation of public space, there is no substitute for it, put it that way. Uh, and interestingly, uh, if you'll remember, and I find it quite striking in some of the explanations of what happened in Egypt in uh, January 2011, in uh, January, uh, so April 2009, there was an attempt to call a general strike in Egypt, and what was interesting, in memory of 2008, the 6th of April movement of 2008, and nothing much happened. It was a bit of a damp squib, and I remember then the explanations for why it had not worked in 2009 were exactly the same explanations that were trundled out for why it worked in 2011. They said, oh, it's all middle-class kids on Twitter and Facebook, and who do, they, who do they represent anyway, and of course it wouldn't work. And suddenly, 2011, people said, oh, the reason why they all came out was because of you know, Twitter, Facebook, and their middle-class kids, and you know, you think, hang on a minute, this is a bit strange. So I think that there, there was an element of the physicality of public space which can't be gainsaid. And I think one has to really think seriously about what that means and why you could argue Occupy movements for all their quixotic elements are extraordinarily interesting uh, in terms of beginning a conversation, catalyzing things in some form. And that brings me to the question that you, you raised, which I think is, again, very apt, the notion that by going into public space, by communicating with people, by demonstrating yourself, you are constituting yourself, not just as an individual, but as part of a larger collective. And I think many of those messages from Tahrir are in a sense about people regaining a sense of respect for themselves and as agents in history, a notion that you can be Egyptian and being proud of being Egyptian because it's no longer associated with the public humiliation. Uh, of the regime that you could never gainsay because the power was so great. So I think that notion of 
self-constitution has been extraordinarily important. And self-constitution is interesting because it is exactly self-constitution that doesn't necessarily follow any pre-given lines. You're not an Islamic Egyptian or a woman or a man or a poor or rich. You are an Egyptian. Of course, you're going to have different views and you have different, different opinions and so on, but you still constitute yourself as an Egyptian with rights to be heard and to act as a political actor. And I think that that's been, again, what I was saying right at the end of my talk was it may not be as dramatic now, but it's there, and it's there in the social memory. And for that reason, one can't say that the politics after 2011 will be exactly those of, our, of before 2011. Well, I think, I'm sorry I have to uh, stop here. Uh, this uh, very interesting and stimulating lecture. Please do join me to, uh, in gratitude to uh, uh, this food for thought, I think, tonight. Thank you very much, Charles.